Good morning. Thank you, ladies. Because of Christmas, because of Jesus' first coming, all is well, all can be well, and all will be well. So lots of good news in that song and um, lots of good news for us this morning. So our scripture reading from, for this morning is found in Luke chapter 2, a familiar passage, the, the birth of Jesus Christ, appropriate at any time, but certainly at this time of year. So if you want to turn in the Bible in front of you to page 857, we're going to read Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 20, and then skip ahead to chapter 3 and read verses 1 to 6. You can find that on page 857 if you don't have a Bible or um, if you're using the Pew Bible in front of you. It's on page 857. And if you wouldn't mind, please stand with me in honor of God's Word as I read. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judah, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Now flip to Luke 3, verses 1 to 6. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. This is God's word. You may be seated. All right. Well, um, so Joy to the World is one of my favorite Christmas carols. That's the song we're going to close with this morning. Um, 
what is it going to take to bring joy to the world? So one of my, uh, speaking of favorites, one of my favorite little short things that C.S. Lewis wrote, um, he's famous for the Chronicles of Narnia, but he has a great little essay, and I've referenced it in years past, but um, it's just such a powerful little essay. It's called A Word About Praising, and basically, before he became a Christian, he was an atheist, and it, he was bothered by the fact he's teaching the Psalms as literature in, in uh, Oxford at the time, a, a literature professor, and he was bothered by the fact that in the Psalms, God would command people to praise him. And he just thought, what kind of celestial egomaniac just creates people to tell him how great he is? You know, why does he need these strokes? This is just, this is strange. It bothered him. So he writes this little essay after he became a Christian, and he said the most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. I have never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise. He says, I'd not noticed how the humblest and at the same time most balanced and capacious praised most, while the cranks, misfits, and malcontents praised least. Praise almost seems to be inner health made audible. I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Or to contemporize it a little bit, you know, you see something on Sports Center. Oh, did you see that? Or you have a great meal. You've got to try. See a movie? Come on. How much praise about Star Wars took place this week? Good grief. But that's an example. So we're wired that way. So C.S. Lewis continues. He says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. The delight is incomplete till it is ex expressed. It's frustrating to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good he is. Or to come suddenly at the turn of the road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then to have to keep silent because the people with, with you care no more for it than a tin can in the ditch. To hear a good joke and find no one to share it with. And then he says this, pulling it all together. The Scotch Catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But we shall then know that these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify Him, He is inviting us to enjoy Him. So, joy to the world. What is God's intention in the incarnation? What's He after? Well, He's after His glory. Oh, yes. And he's after his glory by giving us his joy. So that's actually what our text is all about. And hopefully this will become clear as we walk through it. We've been walking through a series called God Saves through the book of Isaiah, this big magisterial book in the Old Testament that in, in lots of places can be very confusing. But the message has been really clear in recent weeks the last two weeks and then this morning, in chapters 36 to 40, the theme is the same. Come and deliver. People really realize in these chapters that they need the Lord to come and deliver, and He does repeatedly, and that's the same point this morning. So if you want to turn in your Bible to Isaiah chapter 40, again, if you're using... If you don't have a Bible or if you're using the, the Bible in the pew there, you can find it on page 599. And some of you might be 
visiting. Let me just give you a brief little catch up here. This will be quick, but it's important to understand where we are in this big book. So chapters 1 to 39, by and large, are all about the unwillingness of the people of God at the time, at least they were supposed to be the people of God, to trust the Lord. They were rebelling against him, against his wise and benevolent and omnipotent kingship. So there's this tendency in us as well, in the midst of comfort, to forget and ignore God rather than trust him, right? Because we don't feel like we need him. And then there's the tendency in the midst of chaos and threats to run and scramble to everyone and everything but him for refuge and safety and security and deliverance. So listen to this verse in Isaiah 30, verse 15. It's a good summary of, of the problem that's addressed in the first half of the book. For thus said the Lord, the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved. This was his message to, his, to, to the people of Judah and Jerusalem at the time of Isaiah. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But you were unwilling. It's a pretty good summary of the first half of the book. So God could not reinforce that kind of spit-in-your-face rebellion. He sent his prophet Isaiah. He warned them of judgment and consequences, but their foreheads were like stone. And so, historically, what happened was that the people of the region of Judah, and Jerusalem in particular as the capital city, eventually, they reaped what they sowed. God sent Babylon as his tool of judgment in 586 B.C., And the Babylonian army burned the city to the ground. Many died. Many were carted off to Babylon as exiles. Isaiah, if you were here last week, predicted it at the end of chapter 39. Just look back at 39, 5 to 7. Isaiah said to Hezekiah, he was the king at the time, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that's in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. Now he's speaking these words right around 700 B.C. So this is 115 or so years before it happened. This is prophecy, but it did happen. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord, and some of your own sons, Hezekiah, who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. So even though Isaiah likely died an old man somewhere around 680 BC, tradition actually says he was sawn in two, under the wicked reign of Hezekiah's son Manasseh, you can read all about him in the Bible, even though that was, a, that was coming as an old man, before he died, he received a, almost a second commissioning as a prophet in his twilight years. So remember his first commissioning was back in Isaiah chapter 6 when he was in the temple and he saw this vision of the Lord, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the voice of the Lord said, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Isaiah had been just undone by this vision. He knew how sinful and unclean he was because the Lord is so pure and, and holy and glorious. And he just, he just felt like he was coming apart at the seams. He was undone. He knew he pronounced a woe on himself because he knew he just deserved judgment. And instead, the Lord atones for his sin and commissions him as the prophet first time. And here's what the Lord says. Go and say to this people, keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. How would you like that job? Here's your message, here's, and here's how they're going to respond. So he says, how long, O Lord? And the Lord says, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away. Exile. To Babylon, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Ugh, the first half of the book is this confrontation by the prophet and judgment for their rebellion. So most of Isaiah's preaching for most of his life was judgment. So it's not an easy popular job. But his second commissioning before he died, we find here in Isaiah 40, and it's a call to 
preserve a word of promise that would be such a much-needed and finally well-received word of comfort to those exiles who would be spending 70 years under the heavy hand of, of oppression in Babylon. Okay, so these people, these exiles, so if you think about it, the first half was all this confrontation and judgment. The second half, chapter 40 to 66, is going to be a word of consolation and comfort. <coughs> and these people in Babylon, these exiles, are finally, they're broken by their sin and its effects. These people would come to long for the deliverance of the Lord. And so the tone changes in Isaiah 40 to 66 from judgment to deliverance and restoration. And when you and I, when we've been broken by our sin and the brokenness that our sin produces and other people's sin produces in our lives and all around us, this comfort, this promise, this is the best news in the world. So you can begin to see how a message that's nearly 2,700 years old speaks directly to us in our day and time. So let's dive in here and, and walk through it. So for those who have been broken, I hope that's all of us, but maybe God intends to break some of us that are still um, resisting him. So look at verse 1, chapter 40, verse 1. The tone totally shifts and these two words start right off. They're repeated for emphasis. Comfort. Comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So first off, notice that God says, comfort, comfort, my people. So I don't know if you, any of you would remember this. I had forgotten it, but um, noticed it this week. So due to the, the previous insolence and stubbornness of the people in Judah, the Lord actually refers to them as this people rather than my people. Have you ever heard a parent with you know, a really insolent child? This child. Okay, now that's kind of maybe tongue-in-cheek or maybe it's, well, whatever. This is really serious that the Lord says, this people. They're not my people. He has to judge them. But here, it, tur it turns. They're my people now. In fact, um, do you remember that verse? This people, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They were still going to church, still going through the motions, but their heart was in a totally different place. They weren't his people. But now they are my people. This is so sweet. God speaks to his people and says, you're mine. You are not a cosmic orphan. You have not been kicked to the curb and forgotten. I'm coming to get you. You are mine. I love you. That's what he's saying here to his people. So for those of us who've been broken over our sin and have ears to hear this good news, God says, consolation, comfort. That's what I want to give to you. And for many of us, he had to break us of our foolish pride in order to crack us open so that we would be ready to receive, so that we realize how much we need this comfort and consolation. When the Lord breaks us, he doesn't do it to stick it to us. He doesn't do, us to, do it to rub, it, rub our face in it. He does it because he can only give grace to the humble. He opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So blessed are the poor in spirit who know their soul poverty without his, the riches of his grace. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn over their sin for they shall be comforted. Comfort, comfort is what he's speaking here. Look at verse 2, speaking tenderly to Jerusalem. Literally this reads, speak to the heart of my people. This is great. I want to just give you an idea of what's being said here. So flip ahead to Isaiah 65, 17. Big number, 65, in case you're unfamiliar with the Bible. It's the chapter, little number 17 is the verse. 
Isaiah 65, 17. This is a prophecy of when everything gets renewed, all things. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. Literally, come into your heart. So same language of speak to the heart. So here's the, here's the point. We, we take things to heart, don't we? Not just comforting things. Suffering sinks deep down. Pain seeks, sinks deep down. When, when we go through really hard things, it affects us deeply at the core. And that's the place where we need comfort. Not superficial, but down at the heart level. And so here, the Lord wants to speak comfort to our hearts, down into our hearts. One day, His renewal is going to be so sweet and wonderful and pervasive that the hardest things, the most painful things, they won't even be there anymore. They'll totally melt away. We won't take them into our hearts anymore because everything will be made new. There's no more tears or mourning or crying or pain anymore. So the Lord is speaking to our hearts this morning. That's where he wants to need his comfort is down deep. And so hopefully we as his people can learn also as we receive that truth deep down, we also need to learn, like Isaiah needed to learn, to speak the truths of the gospel that way to one another. So what's the content of this comfort and consolation? You see those three that's in verse 2? Here's what you should say to her, cry to her, speak tenderly to her, that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she's received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So you can imagine at that time, (coughs) they had known so much conflict. They hadn't known peace for a long time, but here their warfare is ended. And the people had been guilty and they were exiled in judgment, but now they've been acquitted and pardoned. Better than that, it's even stronger than just pardoned. Literally, it would be paid for or atoned for. So, how did that happen? Well, Isaiah will answer that question as we go on in the book. We'll touch on it in a minute. But look, she has received from the Lord's hand. This is, could be a little troubling to you as you read it. She's received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. It's kind of an odd expression. Is God unjust? Is he... You know, Old Testament says eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. Is he like, okay, one eye, I'm going to take two. Double, double payment. That doesn't seem just or fair. Well, there's a lot of ink spilled on what this little section means, but I think the idea is either that he's saying they've paid amply enough, or I think this is probably more likely that the noun actually means the double, literally, the double. So suggesting two halves of something folded in half, the one being the replica of the other. So the idea would be she has received from the Lord's hand the equivalent. You see, the double. The exact match for all her sins. In other words, from the Lord's hand, her sins have been paid for perfectly. That sounds like an anticipation of Isaiah 53. It's not that they just did their time in Babylon, okay? This story is bigger than that. Isaiah 53, flip to Isaiah 53 and see how the Lord perfectly deals with our sin. (coughs) Isaiah 53, 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, 
the iniquity of us all. That was the perfect payment. That's exactly what our sin deserved, and he's the one that took it for us. So this, <coughs> this grace, this is for those who have been broken, this comfort, who have been undone and humbled, just like Isaiah was. I'm ruined. I, woe is me. I'm unclean. I deserve the Lord's judgment. And it was at that point that, the, that his sin was atoned, atoned for. So the same for us. We've been broken by our sin, and we know that we deserve judgment, and instead the, the perfect lamb perfectly pays for our sin in our place. Sin ruins us. But until we, until we feel and experience the ruin, we're oftentimes not open to God's assessment of our need for him. So if we're not in touch with our brokenness, we're not going to have any need for his comfort. So if you have yet to be broken, what is it going to take? Obviously, the Lord sent his people into exile. There were some, it took a lot to wake them up. God is not unwilling to go to extreme measures if we stubbornly resist him. So perhaps he wants to break you today. Perhaps you've been raging against what he's been using to break you. But he's not breaking you or pressing you to just, again, rub your face in it make you miserable, he's, he's breaking you in order to break you open so he can speak comfort and peace into your hard heart that he wants to soften. So we should stop fighting him. We should yield to the one who paid perfectly for our iniquity and let him comfort us down at the core of who we are. He wants to speak peace and comfort deep down there. You don't have to feel like a cosmic orphan anymore. He wants to come and get you and make you his own. Isaiah 12.1 says, You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. He turned his anger on his son so that he could turn to you with comfort and peace. But you know what? Many of us have been following Jesus for a while. And if you've been broken over your sin in the past and broken over the brokenness all around us in our broken world that sin leaves in its wake, if you're already a Christian, that comfort that he's speaking is not just this once and done thing. We are constantly in need of, of his comfort. So we need to let his words of comfort, comfort and consolation seep into and saturate our hearts deep down. He wants to do that this morning. He wants to speak comfort to your heart this morning. So we parents, we comfort our children, right? Sometimes we, sometimes we smile over their petty, unreasonable fears. Although then we go and freak out about our troubles. But how do we comfort our little children? We do it tenderly. We, we want to speak to their heart, right? Especially mothers are really good at this, right? Listen to Isaiah 66, 13. And God, the one who's speaking comfort here, uses the mother metaphor to speak of the nature of his comfort. Isaiah 66, 13. As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. How does a mother comfort? Just listen. Maybe speak up. I don't know. I'm just kidding. Um, I'm here. It's going to be okay. It's over now. You're safe. I love you. I'm going to take care of you. Or yesterday. So Ben, our four-year-old, um, for the first time had some night terrors, although they were in the daytime. So Johnny called them day terrors or something, or daymares, um, nightmares. Um, so I was outside, and Hannah sent Lily. Hannah tried to comfort him and sent Lily out to get me, and I came up, and, and you know how they're not awake, but their eyes are open, and they're freaking out. Um, so Hannah couldn't get him calmed and, and awake, and finally he, 
you know, I grabbed him and calmed him down, woke him up, and, and um, you know, he just laid on my chest. I put him back down, went back outside. It happened again. And I went in, and literally I just held him for an hour, and he slept on my chest for an hour um, after I had kind of calmed him again. So God comforts like a mother comforts, and he also comforts like a gentle, strong shepherd, like a father comforts. Isaiah 51, 12, I, I am he who comforts you. This is the one who, who just spoke all the stars into existence, who measures the waters in his hand. He's the one that's speaking. He's the one that wants to comfort you. Those are omnipotent arms that he wants to wrap around you to speak this comfort down to our hearts this morning. I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies? The son of man who's made like grass. So that's the the father, the omnipotent father speaking to our unreasonable fears in the light of who he is. So the Lord of glory, the maker of heaven and earth, the king of the universe, he wants to stoop. He's doing it this morning. He wants to do this for us. He wants to stoop and speak tenderly to your heart this morning. He wants to melt away your fear and anxiety and pain with his tender words. So all your pain, suffering, angst, he wants to calm and soothe and comfort you. All your loneliness and aching and turmoil. All your regret and shame and failure. It's okay. I'm here. I love you. I forgive you. I paid for it fully, perfectly. It's going to be all right. All is well. Stop beating yourself up. Stop thinking your life is over. Stop obsessing over your failures. Stop believing the lies that your future is bleak and dark. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Don't you want to welcome this God? <laughs> I mean, how foolish would it be to turn him away? So the Lord has come. Prepare him room. Point number two, verses three to five. A voice cries. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Whole point here is a troubled people in need of comfort and what does the Lord do? He intervenes divine, personal intervention to a demoralized people. Is that relevant for anyone? His people are suffering and broken. He's going to do something about it. He's not going to give orders to someone else. He's not going to organize a committee. He's not going to commission a study to look into things. He's going to come himself. The glory of the Lord will be revealed. And so for us, on this side of the cross and incarnation, he has come. <clears throat> we read it, that John the Baptist is the voice crying out for this preparation. And the glory of the Lord was revealed. I mean, just think about it. The glory of, of a humble God. Isn't that crazy? Just, just ponder that one this Christmas. A humble God who is willing to come and take on flesh and blood to deliver us. 
The glory of a loving God who is willing to endure the shame and God-forsakenness of the cross. Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. So that we could become honored sons and daughters who would never be forsaken. So, joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. I love how Ray Ortland says what this, every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low, what this means for us. He says, God will accomplish his purpose. Every valley shall be lifted up. He's talking about the upheaval of true repentance. Remember, this is what John the Baptist was doing, get, getting the people ready for Jesus to come. He's talking about a new moral t- topography, a new social landscape. He's talking about the disruptive advance of salvation. He's saying that lifting up and lowering and leveling and smoothing are necessary to the kingdom of Christ. He's talking about depression being relieved, the valley being raised up, pride being flattened, mountains being made low, troubled personalities becoming placid and difficult people becoming easy to get along with. And he's also implying that if we cling to the status quo and refuse God's upsetting but constructive salvation, we risk having no part with Christ. So let's welcome Bethel, not resist this disruptive advance. So what is it that holds you back? What is it that holds us back sometimes from welcoming the disruptive work of God in our lives? Is it that we're suspicious of the character of God? I think sometimes that's the case if we actually asked why a few times and got down underneath. Now, hopefully what we've heard already from this passage just blows that obstacle up, levels that mountain. He is so good and kind. Or, you know, if we, if we follow Jesus, if we really commit... or. Is it that we fear we'll fail? We won't be able to keep the faith? I made commitments before. Or is it that the threats, our troubles that we face, they just seem too big, too unmanageable? It doesn't seem like there's, I mean, there's got to be some other help that's more effective and helpful. The words of God just seem to us, uh, words, words, words. Is that what holds us back? Well, look at where the text goes, because God wants to give us assurance, not only of his willingness, so we can trust him, but he also wants to give us assurance of his ability, again, so we can trust him. He wants to give us assurance in this unsure world. Look at verses 6 to 8. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? Again, recommission of Isaiah, most likely. Although, he's not in view and his name isn't even in here, which I think points to the fact that the message is really the most important thing, not so much the messenger. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. (coughs) The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Now, how does that assure us? Kind of an odd sermon. How's that supposed to help? Well, God has made promises of comfort and deliverance in this section earlier. Is he going to make good on them? Can he make good on them? Can we trust him to do that? Well, here's your options. You can either trust grass. I'm not talking about what's been recently legalized in different places in our country. You can either trust in grass or you can trust in God. You can trust in yourself or you can trust in someone else or some human institution. But when your trust is in man, flesh, people, your trust is in a fleeting, vaporous thing. In verse 6, the ESV translates the Hebrew as all its beauty. Um... The word is chesed. Maybe you've heard that used 
before. Somebody's mentioned it before because it's most often used to refer to God's stubborn love, His stubborn, steadfast love. So actually the focus here is not on our beauty as people, but on our constancy or reliability. Our reliability is like grass. One commentator writes this, In the Middle East, there's a thing called a hamson, a hot, dry wind from the east that's likely to blow in May and that can turn the countryside from green to brown in 48 hours or less. So that, that like, first hearers, they would have heard that and said, okay, we know exactly what you're talking about. We have this picture of what we are like. That's a picture of our inconstancy. So why pin your hopes on grass? So have any of you, you don't have to raise your hands, but have any of you ever had the experience of being let down left, right, and center? How'd you respond? How do you respond? Because this is probably something that happens periodically in this world filled with grass people. Well, first off, we should just chasten ourselves. (laughs) Because you know what? We're naturally pretty self-righteous, and we need to realize that we're imperfect and let people down too, okay? We also are prone to self-pity and woe is me, and we need to kind of just grow up and stop licking our wounds. But that aside, people are people. They're grass. They're inconstant. They're limited. And the good news is that the Lord is not. Human, listen to this, folks, human letdown is a setup divinely intended. The whole point is that we need help from outside. That's why he came. So we are disappointed and let down, and we have to deal with the lack of competence around us and the lack of follow-through and lack of common sense and lack of sensitivity. Anybody dealt with that this past week? And we let ourselves down and we beat ourselves up and we're so frustrated that we're not perfect. We hate the people that appear perfect even though they're not. We let ourselves down, even if by nothing else than our our finiteness, our, our limited time and resources. I mean, I think this passage, one of the implications is we need to lower our expectations of people. I'm not saying, like, enable people. I'm just saying, they're grass, and so are you. And raise your expectations of the Lord. Oftentimes, we just get that exactly reversed. I mean, just, just think about this. If you are constantly or regularly given to griping and complaining and being sour and disappointed and frustrated with people, and with this world, and it's all going to hell in a handbasket. You know, like, I'm. You're hoping in people too much. And you're hoping in God too little. And I'm, you know, we can all be guilty here. His comfort must be too unreal to you. You remember Hezekiah, last chapter, if you were here last week? This great king, the assessment of his life in the book of Kings is glowing. And yet, near the end of his life, He stupidly shows all of the treasures of Jerusalem to the envoys from Babylon, and Isaiah comes to him and says, all right, all that stuff's going to be carted off to Babylon. That was really dumb. And how does he respond? Well, at least there'll be peace and safety in my days. And you're disgusted. Well, the whole point is he's a mixed bag. And guess what? So am I. And so are you. And so is everyone. The best leaders are imperfect. The best of men are men at best. Okay, it's a little cliche, but it's true. Truest comfort can only come from the Lord. (coughs) Spouses, co-workers, friends, churches, schools, families, politicians, every institution will let you down. Just a little diagnostic. If, again, you find that you are regularly riddled with anxiety, fearful in the face of threats, 
You need to connect two dots here. It is an indicator that you're pinning your hopes too much on grass-like flesh and too little on the one whose mere breath can blow away every threat. To his breath, every threat is like grass. Every threat. And to that context that was originally, Isaiah was originally talking to, we're talking about world superpowers. Grass. There are no ultimate unshakable threats. How fearful are you of a blade of grass? I'm sure there's a phobia of it, but like, I don't imagine any of us have this in this room if you've ever been afraid of a a blade of grass. Every challenge will fade. Every promise will remain. You can bank on that because the Lord says... Again, listen to Ortland. I quoted this last week, but it bears repeating so you can see how this is the hinge of the whole book. Here we are at the end of Isaiah 1 to 39. The people of God have heard the truth, but they haven't received it into their hearts where it could make a difference. But chapter 40 starts, and he's speaking to the heart so that it does sink in. Now they're headed for exile. Every human agency is found wanting. Only God remains. And therefore, God alone will restore his people by his own grace and power, according to Isaiah 40 to 66. So all human agency found wanting. We are grass and mist and vapor, but the word of the Lord is sure. And he wants to assure us of his willingness and his ability to save and to speak comfort to our deepest soul. So that's awesome. What do you do with comfort and intervention and a certain promise like this? What do you do with news like this? Well, you can't keep it to yourself. You go tell it on a mountain. It's like half the Christmas carols come from this section. um, It deserves to be shouted from the rooftops. Joy to the world. So look at verses 9 to 11. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice. This is the city of God, the people of God. This isn't just Isaiah. This isn't just for the professional preachers. Okay? Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up. Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom close to his heart and gently lead those that are with young. So do you remember back to verse 2? Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. The message of comfort was spoken to Jerusalem, to God's people. Now, in verses 9 to 11, the message is supposed to go out from Jerusalem. Do you see that? They, we, are supposed to be heralds. Just like Isaiah was in chapter 6. He saw his need and brokenness. He was undone. The Lord atoned for his sins and comforted him. And then when the Lord says, whom shall I send? He goes, here, here I am, send me. So now in chapter 40, speak comfort. I'm going to pay for their sin. Jesus came to pay perfectly for our sins. He is bigger and greater than every threat. He can speak comfort to our deepest soul. And then he says, okay, now it's time to shout it from the rooftops. And we should say, here I am, send me. So when you're broken and God comes and delivers you and heals you and comforts you, and his word is rock, solid, sure, and it assures you, how can we help but want to share that with other people? There is so much good news to share. I mean, look who it is who's come. I love this. Verse 9. Fear not, behold your God. Okay, what's he like? Behold, the Lord God comes with might. And his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. There is so much good news here to share. 
Again, Motir, commentator, he says, The Lord is about to return to Zion. He will come with the strength of a warrior. No enemy will be able to resist him. And with the tenderness of a shepherd, the weak will not be left behind. And he will bring gifts, his reward, his recompense, that will make the sufferings of the exile vanish like a forgotten dream. So he is our mighty warrior God. If God is for us, who can be against us? He conquered sin and death and hell and Satan. He is mighty to save, but he's not just strong. He's also sensitive and tender. He is a gentle shepherd. That same omnipotent arm that can deal with all of our fears and threats, they're just grass with him, is the same arm that gathers us his little lambs, to carry us close to his heart. He's so sensitive. He's so attentive. That's even the point of the image, that last image. Uh, He will gently lead those that are with young. He's not going to drive them because he knows what it's like. He's attentive to them. He's sensitive to them. So, So omnipotently tough and strong and wonderfully sensitive and tender is our God and Savior. That's our God. That's our comfort. That's our hope. So if we savor that this Christmas and always as Christians, if we we hear this word of comfort, it sinks down deep, we are going to be filled with joy because of who our God is and what he's done. And we're going to want to praise what we enjoy. And we're going to shout it from the rooftops. We will actually be empowered to herald the good news of Christmas when we savor the grace of Christmas and enjoy it. So joy to the world actually means that it sinks into our hearts. And then when it sinks into our hearts, we won't be able to help but share it with others because our joy won't be complete until it's expressed because we want other people to join in that joy. So as Christians with this God, with this Savior, this hope, this comfort, this joy, we are on planet Earth to bring joy to the world because Jesus came to bring joy to the world. So let's close by singing that Christmas carol pray. You are so great and glorious and gracious. Please speak these words to our hearts. Cause them to sink down deep and change us at the core so that we are thrilled that you have come. And I pray that we would gladly go, say to others, behold our God so that they can come and enjoy you now and forever. In Jesus' name, amen.